0: Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 14. Better is better. That sounds like an ad campaign. And indeed, Nike did run an ad campaign called, My Better is Better Than Your Better. Verizon ran a campaign, Better Matters. Well, better is a theme that runs throughout Hebrews. We could go through chapter by chapter. In fact, I will. Chapter 1, Christ is better better than the angels. Chapter 3, Christ is better than Moses. Chapter 4, Christ is better than Joshua. Chapter 5, Christ is better than Aaron. Chapter 6, Christ is better than Abraham. Chapter 7, Christ is is better than, greater than Melchizedek. You you, kind of get the point. Christ is better. But no sooner do we affirm this precious truth, then another one comes crashing into it. And Shelton has quoted, used this quote, I think, to begin worship some, sometime in the past from David Foster Wallace. It's this truth, this uncomfortable truth, that everything in my own experience supports my deep belief that I am the absolute center of the universe, the realist, most vivid, and important person in existence. In other words, Christ is better, but what could be better than me? That's what we run up against. It's, I, I really, that's a crude way of putting it. But Christ is better or me is better. That, I think, is the dividing line which runs through most of life. Either Christ is better and I would rather starve than disobey him. Christ is better and I am created to worship him alone. Only when he is first does my life gain coherence Nothing is more important than Christ, or um, you know, me is better, which is it, which is programmed into us from the various, very earliest stages of our life and reinforced continually in our in our culture that my own happiness and self-fulfillment is the most important thing there is around. In chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10. Uh, The author of Hebrews has a challenging task in front of himself, and that is to convince his Jewish Christian audience, we've been talking about uh, this audience for quite a while, to convince them that Christ and Christianity are better when it doesn't feel as though they are better. In this particular way, consider this. If you had spent the uh, majority of your life worshiping in one of the great cathedrals of Europe, Notre Dame or, or St. Peter's. That's where you were at every Sunday. But then your parents came to you and said one morning that uh, we decided we were going to start worshiping in a little storefront church with 50 other people in, in a non-air-conditioned little building. You would have a hard time believing that that was better. It doesn't feel better. And for them, I mean, they... You know, the parallel is they were worshiping in the Jerusalem temple, which was a whole lot nicer even than the cathedrals. I mean, how do you go from the Jerusalem temple to a storefront church? You're going to have a hard time feeling as though that's better. The other one that comes up in this passage and has come up in the last couple chapters is priesthood. They had a priesthood who was there, was tangible. You could see the priest. You could talk to the priest. You could interact with the priest. You saw the priest dressed in their majestic garments. They were real people offering real sacrifices with a pomp and circumstance that was awe-inspiring and comforting to you because you had seen it take place all of your life. How can it be better to leave that priesthood for a new religion that doesn't have a priest, or, okay, it does have a priesthood, but it has one, only one priest, and that priest is invisible to you. How, it, how can that be better? We run up against this in many different parts of our lives. Christ, we may affirm that Christ is better, but he doesn't feel better. Some, and maybe most of the time. Our struggles, of course, are not with temples and priests and all of that, but But when it comes to money, sex, and power, and a host of other idols, ah, it's hard not to to believe that me is better. Let's see how the author deals with it. Verse uh, verse 1, chapter 9. I'm going to do some commentary as I read through it. I'll, I'll try to go fairly quickly. Now, the first covenant, that is by saying the first covenant, the covenant that was made under Moses. The first covenant had regulations for worship, and also an earthly sanctuary, also known as the tabernacle. A tabernacle was set up, verse 2. In the first room of the tabernacle, there was a lampstand. Will might have gone over this in Sunday school. He probably did this morning. But the lampstand, also known as the menorah, was a single golden five or six feet tall um, candelabra, uh, uh, with arms that are coming out the side of it. So it kind of looks like a tree with its arms. It was kind of like the golden tree. With the light of the lampstand, I mean, the, the, uh, the tabernacle was, I think it had four different layers of outward coverings over it. So it would have been pitch black inside. Just You couldn't see your hand in front of your face without the lampstand. And, and the priests would go in and they would tend Tend the uh, lampstand. So that was in, in there. Then, uh, where am I? In its first room were the lampstand. And the table with its consecrated bread. Twelve loaves of bread that they would replace every Sabbath. This, was called, this room was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain, so there's a, a curtain to get into the holy place. And then there's a second, more significant curtain or veil Behind the second court was a room called the Most Holy Place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold covered Ark of the Covenant. The top of the Ark of the Covenant goes by several different titles, but one of them is the atonement cover. The top of the Ark of the Covenant was just a pure gold slab. And on on top of it were two large cherubim with their wings coming in like this. And in Psalm 99 and a couple other places in the Old Testament, it says that metaphorically God is seated upon the cherubim. In other words, he is seated upon the, the wings of the cherubim there. And you could imagine that that is sort of like his throne. There is the presence of God. God seated on his throne in the in this room and the atonement cover was kind of like his footstool where his his feet rest. Of course I'm speaking metaphorically here. That's the Ark of the Covenant. The ark contained the golden jar of manna, he goes on verse four, Aaron's staff that had budded, and then the two tablets of the law, the Ten Commandments, the stone tablets of the covenant. Here we are, verse five, above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now, which is a shame. Because every student of the Bible, you get to verse 5, and you're like, "Why? Go ahead, please discuss these in detail. I would love to hear all of the metaphorical, symbolic meaning of of the the gold jar of manna and the budded staff, etc. But he goes on, he's moving ahead, verse 6. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered, entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry with the bread and the, um, and the uh, candle, or the lampstand and, and the altar of incense. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year on the day of Yom Kippur. Very elaborate ritual. The, the priest would wash from head to toe, He would be dressed in fine, the the finest white linens, and he would go into the most holy place, and there he would sprinkle eight times, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, the blood of a a bull, and that was to make atonement for his sins. He'd go back out, he'd wash from head to toe again, he would be redressed, he would go back in a second time and he'd sprinkle eight times and this time it was the blood of a goat and the goat's blood was to make atonement for for his fellow priest's sins Then you go back out we do the whole thing over again and he comes back in again and i think the third time was with the blood of a goat again and that is to make atonement for for all the people's sins so all all told i think he ends up bathing and redressing as either four to five times it, it's the idea is this just perpetual motion and activity. And he's only able to go into the throne room for, I mean, how long does it take you to sprinkle eight times? I mean, just for a few seconds. And then he's got to immediately run out. And so, verse 7, only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year and never without blood, which he offered for himself and the sins of the people, the sins of people that committed ignorance. And by this, the Holy Spirit was showing That the way into the most holy place had not yet been, I guess, opened or disclosed as long as this first tabernacle, it was still functioning. Verse 9. This is an illustration of the present time, indicating that the gifts and the sacrifices which were being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They were only a matter of food and drink, of various ceremonial washings, that is external regulations applying until the time of the new order. But when Christ came as the high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. That is not made with human hands. That is to say, it's not part of the creation. Uh, The greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven. Um, For the blood of of goats and bulls and ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, which was an Old Testament purification ceremony, uh, that sanctifies them so that they are outwardly clean. Well, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Three-point sermon, and I'm going to just jump right into it. Better tabernacle, better conscience, better sacrifice. Better tabernacle. The tabernacle was at the center of Israel's worshiping life, right? Every t- everywhere they went, the tabernacle was in the center of the people, The tabernacle ends up giving way to Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple is destroyed and it's rebuilt, and we get Herod's temple. But even so, tabernacle goes to temple, but and always the temple was at the very center of Israel's her life and her worship. Here it says that the tabernacle was a copy of. Is it a copy of heaven? Is it a copy of a heavenly sanctuary? I think that's what he's saying. And the question I've been wondering about throughout the week, and I actually emailed a professor to get his thoughts on this, is how is the earthly tabernacle, how is it like the, the heavenly one? How does that modeling, if you will, how does that modeling work? The most common idea is that when Moses went up on Mount Sinai, he was given what were in effect architectural blueprints on how to construct the tabernacle. So God unrolls the blueprints. The blueprints are somehow based upon some, uh, uh, you know, heavenly sanctuary. Then he goes down and they construct the, the, the tabernacle. And it would of the way we would talk of it is if you go into the lobby of a modern building today, uh, Sometimes in the lobby, there will be, under a glass case, the, an architectural model of the building that you're standing in, an exact copy of the building that you're standing in, but in the miniature. And that's how some people view the, the heavenly sanctuary, that the earthly sanctuary was this, was this miniature, exact replication of uh, the, the heavenly one. What do you think of that answer? I don't like it. <laughs> uh, it it sounds way too much like you know, Zeus up on Mount Olympus, right? With with this, you know, up in the clouds. Does God really want us to think of the heavenly sanctuary like a building? Um, I have a very hard time believing that He does. You know, some. Christians have, have almost given this metaphor that uh, Jesus, after he's crucified, kind of goes to the foot of the cross and there in the foot of the cross, he scoops up his blood, and then with his blood he ascends into heaven and there in heaven, he in- enters into the heavenly sanctuary and he sprinkles eight times onto the, the heavenly ark of the uh, uh, the ark, right And is that is that what God is trying to tell us is happening? I don't think so. There's got to be a better way to describe the model. Revelation chapters 4 and 5, do you remember how that describes heaven? Revelations 4 and 5 describes heaven as a throne room. This great throne room with the lamb seated on the throne and angels and archangels and rainbow colors and emerald. And that's how it's described there, not as a a tabernacle. So some people said, well, it's kind of like Plato's cave. The allegory of the cave, where you've got the prisoners, they're all sitting there looking at the side of the cave, and they're chained in such a way that they can only look straight forward. They can't look to the left, they can't look to the right. Behind them is the fire, and then between the fire and the prisoners is what is effectively a parapet, where puppeteers can go along and they say take a cardboard cutout of a dog, and you, you hold it up there behind the parapet, and then it, sh- it shines the shadow. And, and so the prisoners, all they can do is see these shadowy reflections of dogs or cats or what have you. And, and that's sort of what the earthly sanctuary, it's the shadowy representation of, of a greater platonic reality, which still doesn't seem right to me. Um, Come up to me and talk to me after the end of the service. If you have a better idea of how the earthly one is like the heavenly one, I, my, my suspicion is that it's kind of like a child's diagram of quantum physics. You, right, you take three, five minutes to describe quantum physics to a kid and give him a crayon, and <laughs> this is what you get. That's how close the connection between the two is. I don't know. But what I do know, I know that's a, a lengthy, maybe rabbit trail, but what I do know, what I do know Is that a number of the things in the tabernacle remind us of the Garden of Eden? Did Will touch on this this, in Sunday school? We had a lot of dovetailing going on. But remember, the Garden of Eden, the entrance to the Garden of Eden was on the east, it was in the east. The entrance to the tabernacle was in the east. You couldn't get back through the Garden of Eden. Why? Because there was a cherubim. Or two, stationed there at the door with flaming swords barring the entrance. You can't go back into the garden to be in the presence of God. Well, what happens? Remember when the, te- when the uh, priest walks into the, the, holy, the holy place? What is staring back at him on that veil or that curtain, separating him between the most holy place? What, what's, what's, what's embroidered on that fabric? It's cherubim, blocking his presence. You can't go back in except for the blood of a sacrificial animal and only for a short period, period of time. Um, but what happens with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross? The veil of the temple is torn from top to the bottom and we, we see that God is saying, I'm no longer keeping you away from me. You you no longer can only come to me through some priestly representative and for 60 seconds now, and this is what the author is going to say in chapter 10, now that since Christ has offered himself as the perfect sacrifice, we may boldly enter into the most holy place to, to, to be with our living God. That is the Christians, that is the great Christian privilege that we have. Are you taking advantage of it? So... Better tabernacle, better sanctuary. Secondly, better consciences. And I'm taking this from verse 9. He says, all of this continual priestly activity, there were no seats in the tabernacle, by the way. The priest could never sit down. He could just never sit down and and, and kick his shoes up and just kind of rest. He was constantly, perpetually in repetitious motion. And he says in verse 9, this is an illustration of the present time, indicating that the gifts and the sacrifices being offered, this, this continual, they were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. It, it's the problem of, of the stained conscience. Experts in biological sciences will tell you that there's no such thing as a guilty chimpanzee. Oh, really? No, uh, chimpanzees don't have a conscience like you and I do. Even the most sophisticated animals feel no remorse for stealing food from another chimp. Uh, They express no moral outrage when they watch a chimp steal from another chimp. Our consciences are uniquely human. And the other thing that's uniquely human, I guess, is that every one of our consciences are stained. We have stained our consciences. We have stained our consciences by using our tongues for evil, to ridicule, to belittle, to lie some of us confess those sins just a minute ago and and during during our prayer time Um, some people's consciences are stained by the fact that they've had abortions or or had affairs some of our consciences are stained by the fact that we've worked too long and we've neglected our children or we drank too much we didn't we didn't give them ourselves what do we do with these stained consciences that we possess? Ray Cortese says there are three ways people commonly deal with stained consciences. One is by doing what we call Protestant penance. One is by doing penance, the idea that I'm just going to make up for all the bad in my past. And if I give to the United Way, if I bring my turkey for the hungry people on Thanksgiving and Christmas, if I go on the missions trip to the Warm Springs Reservation, if I come in on Tuesday mornings and I vacuum the church, I'm just going to sweat out out the, the, the evil from my pores. I'm going to make up for all the hurt I've done. And we, it's these acts of, of penance, these sacrifices of bulls and goats of penance. He says they can never purify and make clean our consciences. And some people try and dull, uh, all of us probably try and dull our consciences with some drug of choice. Alcohol, or pot, or television, or... You know what the most common drug of choice is among us here in Boise? It's busyness. If we can just keep life moving, that's what we say. If I can just keep life moving, and I never stop, and I never slow down, because the last thing I want to do is sit on the porch and deal with my conscience and be quiet. So if I just keep myself in perpetual motion, kind of like the priests, but that doesn't clear the conscience... And then the third one, modern man, has a, the modern man has a very interesting strategy, and that is to just do away with the concept of guilt. There you have it. Just, why be guilty? I mean, guilty is, guilty is just a product of a puritanical church age that declares things to be wrong that aren't really wrong. You feel guilty about that? Well, why should you feel guilty? That's somebody else's rules. Those aren't your rules. Make up your own rules. Guilt is just a a construct foisted on you by other people. But the problem is that if we do away with guilt, we also do away with significance. The problem is if our morality is just this evolutionary appendage that makes it easier for us to pass on our genetic material to to the next generation, then then that means that that anything that we do do. I mean, Mother Teresa's life was a waste spending it as she did on the poorest of the poor in India. If there's no God, if there's no right, if there's no wrong, if there's no heaven, if there's no hell, if you came from nothing and you are going to nothing, then you are what? You're nothing. And nothing you do will ever matter. It doesn't matter if you are good or bad or evil. It doesn't matter if you, if you ever work or ever provide for your family. I, I could push somebody off the stage <laughs> and who says that's wrong? Who says anything is wrong? On what basis? It, if you do away with guilt, you do away with significance. And I tell you, if you're not a Christian here this morning, um, your guilt is good. Your, your guilt is a te- internal testimony that, that your life matters, that you are significant, that this, this world in, is significant, Hebrews will speak several more times about the conscience of the worshiper. And each time he talks about conscience, he he stresses the fact that there is a purification which is available that goes into uh, the very center of us. That we are, in verse 14, cleansed to serve the living God. I am forgiven means Christ is better and I'd rather starve than disobey him. Christ is better... And nothing is more important to me than Christ, because I have been cleansed from works that lead to death, is his language, so that I might serve the living God. Many Christians today forget that forgiveness fuels exuberant, joyful life of God's service. And that's what Christ's sacrifice has come and provided. Thirdly, finally, quickly, better sacrifice. The third way in which Jesus is better than the old is that he the Messiah has presented before God not the blood of regular animal sacrifices but his own blood. We've heard that we've sung about that so many times in our our hymns we just we are we forget the scandal. That would be the most shocking part of this letter. The idea Nowhere. If you go back and read all of the ancient Jewish literature, intertestamental literature, uh, ancient Judaism, none of it. Nowhere. You can't find anywhere, anywhere the suggestion that human sacrifice is a good thing. I mean, that's a blasphemous thing. The only place in the Old Testament you could possibly point to might be Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10, where it speaks very cryptically about the servant of the Lord uh, giving his life for very mysterious or the story of Abraham sacrificing Isaac. But the point of that story is, of course, that the sacrifice doesn't happen. God stops it from from happening. Um, Nowhere in Jewish literature was was there ever a suggestion that a high priest would have to become simultaneously both the priest who offered the sacrifice and the sacrifice itself. Such an idea would have been blasphemous. So something... Shocking is going on here, even though it's so familiar to us, we kind of miss it. What does the sacrifice involve? What does the blood of the sacrifice involve? Okay, well first, it it, it means that he's given his life for his friends. Uh, At the Passover meal, when Jesus takes the bread, he breaks it and says, this is, is given for you. I'm not denying the fact that it is given for all, all people at all times and all ages. But in a very unique way, that bread was given for his... His body was given for his friends at the table. He was It was given for, for you. Like Brian said, when when Jesus comes to James and John and says, get rid of your nets and come follow me, another thing he says to all of them is... Take up your cross and come follow me. Come and die. That's what it means to follow me. When the Romans, when they would would execute somebody involved in a Jewish rebellion, they not only executed the leader of that rebellion, they executed all the followers as well. When And, and the disciples said, well, we will follow you even unto death. They said that right along with Peter. Yet when the the Roman guards and the Jewish guards come for him in the Garden of Gethsemane, do they take up their crosses and follow him? No, instead, he steps forward and says, take me, not them. Very literally, he gives his life in the place of his friends. His friends who said they would go with him to death. His friends who scatter. And then secondly, not only did Jesus die for his friends, but he also dies because of the sins, because of, the sins of Israel. And by phrasing it that way, I'm not suggesting that he didn't die for the rest of us too. But there's something very unique going on with him dying for the sins of, of, of Israel. And here's how I'll explain it to you. Um, who's pressing for his crucifixion? Israel, the Jewish leaders. Why are they pressing for his crucifixion? Because he is a Torah-breaker, and he is a, is a blasphemer. Who is actually the Torah-breaker and blasphemer? It's Israel. It's not, the, it's not him. The very execution that they are asking Pilate to, to meet out, that very judgment is the judgment they deserve, Israel deserves. So when Jesus is put to death on the cross... He is taking a punishment that Israel deserved. The the blasphemous Torah breaker who is the unfaithful, rebellious son of Israel under the curse of God, that's not what he deserved. That's what they deserved. And so he dies his death as a substitute in their place. His blood is the substitutionary blood. You say, well, how does blood ever... ever, um, how do you get from blood to life? Well, to, I mean, all of us are born into this world through blood, aren't we? Lots and lots of blood is what brings us into this world. And the blood of a sacrificial animal, given on our, for our sake, when the blood of that sacrificial animal is poured out, though our lives are indeed forfeit because of the wickedness and impurity in us, God rescues us by providing a life given in death instead of ours. I'll say that again. God rescues us by providing a life given in death instead of ours. That's the blood. In 1955, Billy Graham was invited to speak at Cambridge University to the students at Great St. Mary's Hall. When it came out in the public that he was going to be doing that, just before he went over to um, London, there were... A bunch of angry letters that were sent to the Times of London with people really upset about you know, how can this fundamentalist Baptist American preacher come and speak to the best and brightest of England about a primitive kind of religion with blood and atonement and hell? Um, Billy Graham, he read the letters to the editor and it freaked him out. He was, he was like, ah, oh, I feel like a country bumpkin. And here it is, I'm coming to Cambridge talking to students at Cambridge. So for the first three nights of of these sermons, uh, I guess a sermon series, lecture series, the first three nights, he tried very hard to quote the intellectuals and and preach very scholarly sermons, very erudite sermons. And he said, in retrospect, in his autobiography, those sermons just fell flat on their face. Uh, They're terrible. On the fourth night, his last night, he said, I got down on my knees and I, I prayed something like this. I said, God, help me to just preach the cross. (laughs) My last talk is tonight, help me to preach the cross. And here's what one eyewitness who was there said. He said, I'll never forget that night. I was in a totally packed chancel, up here, sitting on the floor at Great St. Mary's with the Regis Professor of Divinity sitting on one side of me and the chaplain of the college, who would go on to be a future bishop, on the other side of me. Both of these were good men. Uh, both were also completely against the idea that they needed salvation from sin by the blood of Christ. And dear Billy Graham got up that night and he began at Genesis and he went right through the whole Bible and he talked about every single sacrifice in it. Here's the money quote. He said, the blood was fall- flowing all over the great hall <laughs> everywhere for three quarters of an hour. Blood, blood, lots of blood. Blood. And both of my neighbors were just, they were horribly embarrassed by this crude proclamation of the blood of Christ. And also a bit smug, knowing that no bright, sophisticated young British Cambridge student is going to listen to any of this stuff. It was everything that they disliked and dreaded about American Christianity. But at the end of the sermon, to everyone's shock, when he, he gave his altar call, 400 young men and women stayed to commit their lives to Christ. And that's out of, a, of a, a student body of 8,000 students. 400 of 8,000 came forward. I can remember meeting a young pastor some years later, a Cambridge graduate. We were sitting over a cup of, coffee, a cup of tea in London. And I said, well, where did Christianity begin for you? How did you come to faith? He said, Cambridge in 55. Well, well, when in 55? Uh, Billy Graham's talk, well, What night? Wednesday night. Well, how did that happen? He said this. All I remember is that I walked out of great St. Mary's for the first, and for the first time in my life, I thought Christ really died for me. His blood was really shed for me. What was unbelievable to the professors is that a man like that, preaching a sermon like that, could have totally changed the life of, of a young of a young person like that but so it did friends his blood is better than the blood of bulls and goats because because it cleanses our consciences and his blood is better because we know that the sacrifice was accepted by god how do we know that the sacrifice of christ was was accepted by god because on the third day he rose again from the dead and thereby declared that, that this son is not the rebellious one. He is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And everyone who is united to this son in faith is cleansed from all their, their dead works and raised to, to a life that's, that's to be lived in service uh, to our great God. Christ is better, friends. Christ is better.